Welcome to Idea Collider. Um, I'm delighted to uh, include an episode based on a conversation that we had at JP Morgan a couple of years ago where we invited a round table to discuss cultures of innovation. And uh, you will hear uh, a range of voices here. Um, uh, one of the voices that you'll hear is Linda Avey, who is co-founder of 23andMe and Curious Inc. You'll also hear Amrit Chowdhury, who's previously been on this podcast, who at the time was CEO of Mass Innovation Labs, uh, now Smart Labs. Uh, you will hear Steve Holtzman, who at the time was CEO of Decibel Therapeutics. You'll hear Raj Kanan, who was SVP and Global Franchise Head at EMD Serrano. You'll hear Michael Schrag, uh, author and research fellow uh, and uh, visiting fellow at Imperial College uh, uh, London for Innovation and Entrepreneurship, and one of my favorite authors on innovation. And you'll hear Robert Urban, who at the time was the global head of J&J &J Innovation. Um, I would advise you to go to our YouTube, YouTube channel. Uh, there's a lot more than we'll share today. Um, and you'll also be able to add faces to the voices that you're hearing. So enjoy. As I just mentioned, very keen to get into the whole conversation around innovation and what it means and what it means for farmer and, uh, and actually importantly to think about lessons for not just how our own companies could do this better, but how the industry as a whole could embrace the innovation that everyone's talking about. So um, we've got a few starter questions. Um, first one of which is, is, what is, is, how, is it, how do you define innovation either within your organization or how do you personally define innovation? Um, so maybe for, for, for the only time tonight, we'll go around the table and, and, and hear everyone's thoughts on, on, on the subject. So, Linda, do you want to kick us off? Yeah, um, and it was great to get this in advance to kind of know, uh, you know, the topic <coughs> and what we're discussing because it, it is so critical to, to where we're headed, I think, in healthcare. And for us as an organization, I think innovation is really defined around design. Mm -hmm. uh, there's huge opportunity, but to have really big impact, I believe we're going to have to have incredible design. And we've seen this with the tech world, where we look at Apple and what they've developed. There were always the, the Walkman and there were things around, but because of design, it, was, it just changed the world. And world-changing ideas are great, but if you don't have good design around that, I think you're, you're going to fail or it's just not going to have the same impact. So having huge impact with something that has great utility, with design, that combination is really how we define innovation and how we can engage patients. One of the things that we, is our mantra, is that we don't have a Facebook in health yet. And why is that? And we think that it's because we have not really innovated to a point that the design has come in and given patients and people this opportunity to talk about their health in a way that's, that goes so viral. Um, so we see that opportunity uh, to design that space where people can come together and have it be very data-driven, not just conversation, but put data at the center of the conversation. But it's got to be about design, because if, if people can't figure out how to use it, if they can't figure out how to engage with it, it's, it's just not going to work. Mm -hmm. And it has to work in order for us to really have that huge impact. It's interesting to think about, and I guess we define it in two different ways. Um, to us, innovation is not just coming up with very, very creative ideas for how you solve problems, but the actual act of working through executing them, mm. right? Whether they fail or succeed, it's putting the effort and time in to go forward and try the ideas out and be able to do it in an efficient manner 
that you know, we define as innovation in our programs. It's also, I think, building something better tomorrow than what you do today. It's iterative change. People don't, I think, talk enough about making small, sustained changes continually, not just being happy with where you are today, but saying, how do I do this part of our program better? Mm. Is there a better way of doing this? Mm -hmm. That's apart from how we do it today. I think between those two things is how our organization looks to change and model our internal innovation. So I think of innovation as the output of acts of human creativity whose implementation better enables us to achieve our mission and thereby realize our vision. So therefore, it is something which is available to someone working in accounting as much as it is to the scientist at the bench. Okay. Cool. I think in the interest of metaphorical consistency, it shouldn't be a vision, it should be a calling. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, when I work with executive ed classes or organizations, I have a simple operational definition of innovation. Innovation is the conversion of novelty into value. And so when anybody discusses in an organization is something innovative or not, you break it down into, okay, what's the novelty? To whom is it novel? Where's the value? Who gets the value? And what's the conversion process there? And design, digitalization, industrial design, manufacturing, that's all a part of the quote-unquote conversion process on this. So I, I think that's the real kind of issue. For me, innovation is a medium. It's a means to an end. It's a way of getting to the fundamentals of what does value creation mean to the enterprise? How diverse or how specialized is the organization so that some things that may be novel to, to the organization or old hat to some of their customers. And conversion is a very interesting issue as well because it, it deals with the processes of if we have data sets, if we have diverse materials and resources, does that make our conversion processes easier or more difficult? Do we have to diversify the portfolio of conversion processes? So again, it, it, it's a way of, innovation is a way of addressing new value creation in the enterprise, be it for one's channels, be it for one's customers, be it for one's users, or be it for one's employees. Cool. And it's fun that we, that we start this way, <coughs> thinking about what is innovation and what does it mean to us, maybe what does it mean to our organizations, you know, I would like to include what will it mean to society, you know, the key stakeholders for which we, we do all these things. And it means such, I've, you know, tried to understand, you know, by studying this a little bit, how diverse opinion you know, do individuals have in, in this context, and I find it to be extraordinarily, uh, uh, I think, misunderstood or in, in many ways a, a, a difficult to act upon framework for most people, right? So new and useful, another way of saying what you just said is, I would say, a, a very practical way to try to put things in a box that people will all agree. Yeah, in fact, after having thought about that, that is innovative in its way. I think if you, if you think about the ways in which individuals can seek to get closer to that, often striving towards simplicity, which often is embodied in the, the aspects of design as a, an, a path towards what will lead to a better way in which the people in accounting or the people in manufacturing, as well as someone on the front lines of the biology or other ways in which we think about it, can, can all be rallied around how they too can get involved. I think underappreciated often in our industry is how critical business model innovation will turn out to be in making it actually as valuable and as useful and as convertible as it is going to have to be. So there's a bunch of pieces 
in that. For a company like Johnson & Johnson, it's, it steps back, and I, I suspect we'll get into these more quantitative things, at the level of delivery of care. So, you know, if you think about what does it really mean, it's how many days of life that are wonderful do we get to have, right? And how can one, you know, deliver that in, in ways that are, are um, truly quantifiable and, and uh, sort of validated to be associated with a particular type of intervention. And so I look forward to flowing through these as we get into the individual pieces. But for, for me, it, it tends to come down to how do you act upon it? How do you find ways to, in most cases, think about taking complexity out of the system okay. so that you can do it faster, more affordably, and more impactful? Interesting, okay. And before we get on to throwing the, the questions back around, Raj? You know. It's a tough spot to be in after, yeah, after um, all of that. All of the yeah. definitions that have been given out. And I think there's aspects of many of those uh, in the organization that I work in. Uh, for us, I think fundamentally it comes down to two words. Uh, one is curiosity. Mm -hmm. um, I think the ability to get our employees uh, or in any team to be fundamentally more curious um, is the key uh, for innovations. And I think the ability for an organization to allow that curiosity to grow, which means to give them the time and the resources, uh, is the fundamental thing that that really makes one organization different than the other. Mm. Uh, I think for all the things that were mentioned, you know, um, value creation, uh, design, having to do something better, faster, or more efficiently, I think we all do that from, from R&D's places in terms of radical innovation, to process changes, to business model transformations, and how we go to market and engage with our customers. So we have many innovations that go on. But the fundamental thread in our organization is defined by curiosity. Right. You're starting a company. Mm -hmm. uh, and one of the, the, the themes of this evening's conversation is around cultures of innovation. How do we create? How do we understand the innovation culture within the organization? So I guess throw this to you first. How do you plan to manage innovation within the organization? And will it be measured? Yes. Um, so I don't think you manage innovation. I think you lead, you inspire, and you provide the environment in which it can flourish. Um, um, and that the senior, the most important job of the CEO exactly is to create the environment in which extreme, in our industry, extremely intelligent passionate people can come together all right, to innovate, and I'll come back to that in a second, to create something of social meaning, which means medicine, right? something that makes a difference in patients' lives. That latter is, I think, the fundamental telos or purpose of our industry. So while it is true that we have organized society such that we have assigned to the private sector, the for-profit sector, the responsibility for making and delivering medicines, okay? We also know that in some fundamental sense we view the output of our labor as a fundamental human right and good, and not simply a consumer good. And so therefore the leadership of the industry needs to be thinking about its responsibility simply as not Friedman-esque responsibility of maximizing profit for shareholders. So, all right, not all farmers operate that way, but I think the best of the biotechs, given where it came from, 
have that in mind. We are also a science-based industry, all right? If you go to the roots of um, the Enlightenment, all right, and modern science that comes down to us from Bacon and Newton, it is the idea that the data trump, not the political or economic power of the interlocutor, all right? And so therefore you need to create an environment in which people can speak their truths fearlessly without respect to power. You leave your titles and you leave your um, degrees at the door, okay? And furthermore, I don't think you can separate enlightenment science from enlightenment political philosophy because science recognizes that the value of the idea is irrespective of the person's social status, mm -hmm. their color, their gender, etc. So if you actually believe in the nature of our enterprise, it also induces you and requires you to create a culture of diversity and inclusion of multiple different voices and different perspectives. So to me, it's all bound up that you're unleashing the opportunity for the individual to realize their capabilities to flourish mm. in the context of a community mm. because the, the originating spark never comes from a group. It comes from an individual. But the perfecting of the spark into an innovation that's meaningful, at least in pharmaceuticals, requires a group. Okay? And that's the job of leadership is to create that environment. So speaking as somebody who wrote a book on collaboration, I respectfully disagree. I, I, I think that, that it, it, the, it is not in any way, shape, or form. I would, I would, in fact, I would encourage, you know, the Sir James Blacks of the world notwithstanding, I would encourage groups to invest in collaborative cultures and collaborative infrastructures, particularly as, as medicine and molecules become more interdisciplinary and multidisciplinary. That's not to minimize the importance of individuals, but the surest way to add value to a talented individual is to make sure that, or to assure, or to boost the odds that they're in an equally talented and perhaps even more talented collaboration. I just yeah. said the individual, the spark comes from the individual. That's right, I'm the perfecting of the spark mm. requires that. So I'm not quite sure where you disagree no, with I mean, me. I, I mean, because, because I think that you cannot that, to, to treat the individual divorced from the, the individual can't be divorced <coughs> from, the, from the collaboration. Watson and Crick could have gone on parallel paths and it would you know, never worked. And Rosalind Franklin, although there are certain issues about, about how you know, the, the x-ray stuff was, was interpreted. But, it, but that's not the... The point my view is, is yeah. my, my view is that the unit of analysis, you know, I, I take units of analysis very, very seriously on, on, on this. I have spent a lot of time with organizations that have been focused. They want to become more innovative. We need more ideas. We need more people having more ideas. The way that a company like, I'll name the company here, the way that a company like 3M transformed their rate of innovation and, and improved the compression time is that it used to be that they would fund individuals with good ideas. They would fund individuals. You'd come to them, you'd be, you'd be funded. And, and, you know, and nobody has worked at 3M for less than 15 years. You know, that's sort of their, you know, I've never met anybody at, at 3M who's been there for less than a decade. You know, I don't know what, what, what happened, but somehow they all are, you know, but, but 
What, I'll tell you what they did in the transformative. They only would fund people who, they would only fund teams. Mm. You had to be two or three people. It had to be, so, so it's not that I'm, I want to say that individuals don't have support. It's that how you perceive yourself, when, when you're having, when you're generating hypotheses in the context of a collaborative relationship, it's different than writing a novel or musing on your own. I, I, again, there are great geniuses. There are people who, who, are, who are, you know, fat tail phenomenon in this regard. But when, when, when I look at particularly large organizations that care about transforming their innovation culture, I urge them to do recognition and reward around collaborative teams as opposed to brilliant individuals. Let's, let's talk about Google, though, <laughs> how they reward people who come up with innovations, right? right? Yeah. And they, they either do individuals or teams, and I don't know what the, the breakdown is of whether how many individuals they <coughs> rewarded with the, and it's, it's a lucrative award, right? But there were teams that got it and individuals. I'd be really curious to know how that breaks out because, I, you Very, know, that, I think that would be empirical yeah, I, evidence. I, I, I would tell you Google's how we do it. Google's a great example. Google is a great example. I know Larry, I know Sergey, and the reality is it was Larry and Sergey. Mostly Larry, but okay. I, that, that on one dimension, that's true, mm -hmm. but they hired not just great, they, they hired people who were going to work. Absolutely. And then yeah. that was really a precondition. I, I also happen to know, forgive the name dropping, Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs is, since we're on tape, I'll say it, he was a dick. You know, he was a collab, but he was, he was very effective getting a lot out of Wozniak, but the, the reality is, he is, he's a cruel collaborator. My roommate at MIT worked with him at Next. But with Jonathan and I didn't read the biography, you know, he, he, he is very good. It, it, it's, it's a ruthless, exploitive type of collaboration because there ain't no effing way he's doing it on his own. He doesn't have the technical competence and capability, but he has great taste, he has a great eye, he's a great editor, and he is, he's, he's capable of doing the kind of iteration. I concede that it's a different material. The output is, is different. You know, he has a design sensibility. You know, he, he comes to it with an aesthetic sensibility. And that was one of the things that really separated him from the Bill Gateses and the Michael Dells. They absolutely had a business model sensibility. They absolutely had a code sensibility. They absolutely had a value creation sensibility. They had no aesthetic sensibility to speak of. And I'll go one step further. You know, it was hard for them to, quote unquote, collaborate on this. So on this you take that idea of dictatorship whether it's benign or, or benevolent or whatever, and you look at most pharma companies now are not built that way, right? They're not built to be dictatorships. They're built to be collaborative. Well, even I, I, science is built to be dictatorship, right? right. Until yeah. the, the leader of an idea dies, no new ideas can crop up, That's the right? Plank, right. So yes. I, I'm still interested in this conversation around uh, how innovation is managed within the organization and, and, and is it measured as a, as a, as a consequence? So, I mean, especially from the larger pharma company side, what, what do you see? I think just to pick up on this um, thread of discussion, um, I, I, as an individual, I think there are times um, just from personalities and, and the way we all operate. We don't all operate in a collaborative, like our best ideas don't come when we're all together at a big table having Jeffersonian dinners or, or whatever the format is. I think some of my best thoughts actually come when I'm running on my own. Yes. Um, early in the morning and I think about certain things and I, I think your point about 
socializing it uh, and making it happen is sort of the way we started off by saying inventors are inventors, but at the end of the day, the jobs, the kind of people, the personalities that they are, they made that innovation, they executed on that. They made that idea come to life. They made that idea add value at a certain point. I think that is what we're talking about here. So you don't want to, uh, to suppress the individual kernels of brilliance that some people do have in concepts. And, and many times these wonderful ideas get lost, uh, either because they were not as personalities good enough to sell them, they were out-talked by other people at the table, um, they didn't have the time, they had to return back to things that they had to do. I think in an organization how we manage innovation is exactly that, is to be able to provide that autonomy, provide that socialization uh, platform for ideas. So we in our company uh, have uh, sort of like the J&J &J incubator thing. We have an award. Uh, we actually do one of those like Dragon's Den kind of thing every year. I, I think organizations are evolving. I think the pharma DNA is evolving from being an, an invention R&D engine to be right. able to start thinking about how do we holistically think about in partnership. So J&J is not necessarily a competitor. Ten years ago, I would have thought of him as a complete competitor. All I wanted to do was bring a better drug than what J&J brought into the marketplace. Now I'm thinking to myself, what does J&J have? What do I have? How they're, can we collaborate in the same therapy? It's a friendly. So the lines between friend and foe are being blurred slowly but steadily in how we collaborate and how we partner within the pharma companies. Now, the IP part of it is still a huge issue because we're still spoiled children uh, mm -hmm. in pharma where we say it's mine, it's mine, it's mine. Mm -hmm. And that is a huge barrier to innovation, uh, the way we start off, because that's how exactly every conversation starts as to how we build fences. So he's working on something that I have no access to till it gets to like phase two or something, when we could have collaborated right up front uh, in a way that could have actually increased the pie for, for all of humanity, mm -hmm. right? But that IP thing has to be solved in some way because IT moved to open source. IT right. broke down gee, those barriers. Gee, God forbid you use GitHub and, and APIs as, exactly. as a business or technical model. Yeah. Shame on you. Getting, getting back to that individual versus group thing, I will tell you that when I have that really interesting idea yeah. and want to think about it and have been thinking about it all night, the most exciting thing for me to do is to present it to my colleagues so they could tear it apart. That is the best part of working in a collaborative group of peers. I, I, I could not agree with you more, but I want to put a twist on this. And, and you know, in, in, a, in a book that I wrote, this was the thing that ticked off the most people. I think if organizations really care about innovation, the most important cultural shift they can make, even more important than this individual collaboration dichotomy, is to kill the word idea. Ideas are a bad unit of analysis. For science-driven organizations, pay no attention to people's ideas, pay attention to their testable hypotheses. Mm -hmm. You look at the Google culture, you look at the Amazon culture, you look at the next Netflix culture, you look at what Microsoft is doing in the cloud with Azure and Ronnie Kahavi's group, they're running all manner of experiments. R&D has become ENS, experiment and scale. Now they have the advantage because a network reduces the cost of scaling something and I fully concede 
that's a that's a harder task. How do you get to that for, much data with, to for, for, do a data-driven thing, right? Right. Well, all, all I'm saying is, in the same way, you know, you're talking about Dragon's Den or because we're in America, Shark Tank. Yeah. You know, you're talking about making a presentation, you know, of an idea, uh, you know, minimum viable product. You know, minimum viable, I, I, I call those things prototypes. But the, the reality is, don't present an idea. Present a testable hypothesis. Mm -hmm. and, and this is the trick. And this is what I think is really, really hard for science organizations. How do you make that a testable business hypothesis as opposed to a testable technical hypothesis right. and that's hard and that's where I, w I fully agree with you that's where the art of these things come in because I haven't been able and I work really hard at this I haven't been able to come up with a methodology or a way of training or a way of educating where I can spend time with people and come away confident that they can craft a business hypothesis as opposed to a technical hypothesis. I've got 14, 15 companies sitting in your space you must see differences between those companies and between those companies and large pharma and how it manages, how they manage innovation. So it's actually really interesting. Um, we know a lot of the heads of R&Ds for these groups. They sit in our space and they build their teams. Uh, in a lot of cases they come, you know, in CRISPR they came with one person, the CSO, Bill Lumberg, and he built his full team out as part of the program he was building at our space. And there was actually, they were the first client we had, so we had a lot of face-to-face -face time and we were really just working with them originally when they were doing that process. Um, I'll say that actually it's, it's remarkable. It depends on where the people leading the research are coming from. There are a couple of companies that have had professors as the chief scientific officer, as the head of R&D that have come out of uh, the Albert Einstein and the local institutions in Boston. And then there are other people who come from Big Pharma, who were at Merck or Biogen or uh, Johnson & Johnson who led groups there and now are building by themselves and with originally and then backfilling a team um, innovation. The similarities between all of them is the ones that are doing really well all hire really high quality talent, people who are smart, inquisitive, and willing to put real thought into what they're working on and why they're working on it. And then they get out of their way. They make the resources available they set the goals of the organization and they say, let's collaboratively figure out a way of doing this, not necessarily my way of doing it, but, but, but let's explore it. And that's been similar for both the academic groups as well as the industry groups. What do they do wrong? What do they do wrong? Yeah, you have 14, 15, how many of them you know they're gonna fail? You just know they, they give off the stink of, of failure because they misunder their culture of innovation fish rots from the head or from other angles. So we've How do you been, know they're going to fail? We've been remarkably lucky. Okay. Um, our first nine companies have raised $4 billion. Um, so they're good at raising money. They're great at raising money. And they, Is that a good filter? Have you figured that out? But they create fantastic data in order to do so. This is not an This is not a, I have a great brand name and I can raise my Series A. This is, look at the things we've done. And whether it's What big, do those data sets have in common? I don't think I could draw that kind of cross areas of research, okay. gene editing, immuno-oncology, diagnostic. I don't think I can find the commonality between those. Okay. Um, I think that people who are really motivated to be moving forward find solutions. And we know that certain companies have pivoted technology, gone away from their starting IP when it wasn't working out and said, hey, we're not just because we licensed this out from a university doesn't mean we're stuck with this till the end. Let's, if we are trying to do this change, 
Let's find another way of doing it. I think that the ability to pivot is remarkably important for early stage. One of our advisors is James Collins, who's started multiple companies in the Boston area, SendLogic, Sample6. Mm -hmm. And we were speaking with him last week, and he said that the original technology for a lot of these companies that are spinning out of academic centers end up never making it to the actual commercial product, right? The real value is putting together a management team who understands the dynamics of how do you move forward and how do you use the resources and the people resources around you to create a solution that, you know, it's not a, necessarily about the technology, it's about finding the solution to the problem. So the team transcends the technology. I think so, absolutely. So can you become like Netflix and start learning from all that and now developing well, your own you, system? You have a fund to invest, don't you now? We do not have a fund to invest. We that's, make personal investments. Ah, well that's... Yeah. Um, so I've been lucky enough to be able to invest in some of these companies, but that's... So Linda, as opposed to serendipitous. Yeah, Sorry. Yes. So Linda, you've been one of those people, at, I guess, the other side of that. So when you've seen your organizations grow and prosper, what, what have been the early clues that that was going to happen or otherwise? Well, I, I'd go back to your point about the teams. Um, it, and, and I think getting out of the way of their good ideas is one of the best things. So just even like the, the feature on 23andMe of Ancestry Finder, right. that, was some, that came completely out of the blue. And it was a, one of our science, scientists who just came up with the algorithm to identify who was related in our database. And we were just we were amazed at this idea. He actually won an innovative award, that a little thing that we did it to mimic a little bit of what Google does, but it, it's getting out of the way of really smart people and letting them be curious and let them explore and, and be able to come up with their ideas and listen to that. But, and it's also recognizing what those good ideas are, but, and then turning it into a product is the, the, the really satisfying piece of it, of how you really reward them by, by building it into your platform. And, um, so I, it's, it's about the hiring, who do you bring into the team, how do you create the teamwork that facilitates the conversations and the ideas and then uh, productizing that in a way that they can see it. And then the final thing is the story. So I went to a breakfast yesterday here where um, every, every time I meet a person they're like, I have a 23andMe story. And it's, I love the stories, but it's always about, I found this relative that I didn't know existed. And so to see that go to the full fruition of these stories is the best outcome I think that probably these people who come up with these ideas can receive. I think that's a very profound insight here because it has been my experience that one of the most useful bits of feedback is not quote unquote just the user experience or NPS, Net Promoter Score. It's you're listening to your customers or your users tell an innovation story about how they've gotten value out of it. Yes. And that's not just positive affirmative feedback, but it says, oh, that probably means I need to shift my angle of attack more in this way or explore or exploit this data or opportunity that way as a, as, as a result. I think it's a horrible thing yeah. that the siloization of so many organizations has decoupled R&D from actual customer user experience. I think that's a horrible, horrible I, thing. I want to poke fun at a previous concept we were discussing. She just gave an example of a single individual coming up with an idea, executing it, and changing the way the company went and, and sure. offered a product. Yeah. Just right. to point out that it's not, yes. people can make differences themselves as yeah. well. And ideas can turn into amazing 
Sure, and and and, and I can I, and I can fun. sure, and I can I can make <laughs> the the equally obvious conversation that one looks at Ancestry.com, which was which came around and. They were doing comparable sorts of things. There are a lot of places where individuals can try this. I have nothing against individuals, but I, I want to I stress this. In the same way that managing a portfolio of products is not the same thing as managing a platform, managing a portfolio of talented, talented individuals is not the same thing as managing collaboration. Mm.